0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, welcome to Science with Dr. Carl. My name is Tanya Bunter filling in for Lucy Smith and I'm so excited to be learning with you as we go through some of the weird and wacky questions on the text line. Coming up, we look at what is a faecal microbiotic transplant and see how that can be helpful for some people. We also see how long is too long to be using nasal sprays to treat our hay fever symptoms. Coming into these hotter months, why do we need to reapply sunscreen every couple of hours? What's going on there? So stick around for all of that and so much more here on Science with Dr. Carl and Tanya. G'day, Dr.
2: Carl. Ahoy, Dr. Tanya. Lovely to be working with you again.
1: So lovely to be with you as well. It's been years, so this is a total clean slate. Let's jump straight into it. First off,
2: let's
1: listen to this one. G'day, Dr. Mel, what question do you have?
0: Hi, Dr. Carl, Dr. Tanya. Thanks for having me on. Um, I have a question about sunscreen. So I work outdoors a lot in hot weather, so I religiously flip-flop flap. But I've also got kind of bad skin, acne, rosacea and stuff, so I wear makeup. So I always put my 50-plus on underneath my makeup and then my makeup. And what I was wondering is with sunscreen, you have to reapply after, you know, two, four, however many hours... Is that because the chemicals in the makeup actually break down once exposed to like air and sun or is that because they just physically wear off? So if my makeup is still on, is my sunscreen still on?
2: Ah, there's two sorts of sunblocks. There's the ones that um, absorb the chemicals and then there are others that scatter. So the scattering ones are the metals, you know, like zinc and oxide and titanium oxide. And then the absorbing ones, they absorb the incoming ultraviolet and then a chemical reaction happens and then they're no longer the same. Uh So for that reason, you've got to apply it every two hours. And by the way, they do say five mils per arm and ten mils per leg and then the front and the back and so it goes on. You're looking at about a third of a cup seven teaspoons, 35 mils for a full body application. One arm, one leg, body front, body back, et cetera, et cetera, and face. And you just got to lay it on. And they're quite religious, they being the Cancer Council people, every two hours. So in addition to the fact that the chemicals are breaking down, they are dying so you can live, right? The chemicals are dying so that to protect you, but just simple mechanical things like swimming and sport and sweating and towel drying, they can remove physically some of the product. And so they say at least every two hours. So overwhelmingly in Australia, people do not put on enough and they do not uh, reapply it enough. So you just got to lay it on, and and having a big hat which protects you as well. I've found some of those um, fisher people hats. They're fully waterproof, and they've got a string underneath so the wind won't blow it off, but then you kind of look really daggy. I'm used to looking like a badly packed sack of potatoes, so I'm cool with that. (laughs)
0: No, I'm definitely a fan of a big hat. I always have my big hats on. So if I had one of those more physical barrier ones, I think, you said was it zinc or something? like Zinc and lines? titanium.
2: Now yep. I am not an expert on this so I'm going to say I'm running out of knowledge and what would be really handy as we get into summer was maybe we could have on a, a skin cancer specialist and a sunscreen specialist because there are so many areas of knowledge like I don't fully understand. Why do you have to put it on 20 minutes earlier? I do not know. Like mm-hmm. last week was full of I don't knows and here I am starting off the show with an no, I don't know. Like you're thinking if you've got a mechanical <laughs> barrier, you know, like a lump of glass or a lump of steel, it's there as soon as you put it on. So what's that 20 minutes delay for? I don't understand so Maybe that.
1: we have to that put a little... That might be the
0: chemical ones. Maybe they take time for that chemical to sort
2: of... Yeah, but I want a hard effective. yes, no. I don't mm. want a maybe. <laughs> yeah.
1: I think for something this important, we should come back to this one. We'll yeah. put a pin in that one. Thank good you point. so much, Dr. Mel. Thank you
2: very much. Thank you, you Dr.
1: And now we have Dr. Andy. Are you there, mate?
2: Dr. Andy, come on down.
1: Um,
0: yeah, I was just wanting to know a question I've been meaning to ask you for a while and I just kept forgetting. Um, if our sun, uh, yellow, small sun, would have suddenly change colour to one of the other coloured suns, ignoring the heat and gravity and all that stuff from all I'm curious about is the colour. Would that change our perception of colour in terms of how the primary colours work to our eyes and would everything look a different colour and would our skin actually change colour?
2: Whoa. Would our skin change colour? (laughs) Well, okay, so firstly, our sun... having a little drink there. (coughs) Cough, 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 cough. Our sun is not a yellow sun. (coughs) Sorry about that cough. Trying to drink too much water in one go. Our (coughs) sun is not a yellow sun. The reason that you think it's yellow is because in kindergarten, when they give you a bit of paper, if you try to draw white on a white background, you get nothing. So that's why we think it's yellow. Cough, cough, cough. Goodness cough. me. Secondly, it's actually slightly green, but it put oh, most of its energy out in the green and less at each end, but we've adjusted our eyes, evolved to sort of, we turn that into a general white colour. If the sun was suddenly to change colour, we would notice it for a little... <coughs> <coughs> Sorry about this, terrible cough. We'd notice it for a little while, and then it would go away. We wouldn't notice it anymore. And I had a really good example of this when I was in a building, a skyscraper, walking around, and I was just walking, waiting for somebody to turn up, and I was looking out through the windows, and the world looked normal, 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 and then suddenly I came to a place where the tradies were replacing one of the glass windows. And suddenly outside it looked really green. Everything really green. And so what I was doing was I was, (coughs) sorry about that, Um, I was was looking through coloured glass and I adjusted that to be normal and then when I saw the outside world, then the outside world looked abnormal. So this is called habituation and after a little while, your eyes would adjust back to what you perceive with your processing in your retina and then in your brain. So short term, they'd be changed but not long term. Yeah, so effectively nothing would change. That's amazing. Well, the human eye is stuck with what it's got. Um, Gradually, over many, I'd say thousands of generations of humans, we might change some of the pigments in the retina so that they would adjust to the different colours. So we've got three main colour pigments, blue at around 440 nanometres, so it's sensitive to that blue light, kind of like the three inks in an inkjet printer, um, and then uh, green and red at 525 and 575 nanometers, and we might find ourselves evolving different pigments to better appreciate the new colour that the sun is giving us.
0: Oh, fantastic. Well, that was a luck when you can actually give me an answer. Thanks, Dr. Carl.
2: Better than last week. Oh, my God. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> it you. was fun to listen to anyway.
1: We've got Bo on the line. G'day, Dr. Bo. What's your question for Dr. Carl?
0: Uh, I've got a question about dreaming and uh, how our brain puts us into a dream when we go to sleep
2: Mm
0: -hmm. and how, uh, how, more or less, how and why it uh, connects it to a wet dream.
2: Right. Go on.
0: So um, I'm just, yeah, well, more or less, I'm just wondering how our brain and what goes on inside the brain to put us to, oh, put us to a dream when we're asleep.
2: And the the wet brain having a sexual uh, orgasm while you're asleep. Yes, and how that relates into. Okay. Um, Firstly, we don't understand why we sleep and we don't, we, the sleep scientists, not me, don't understand why we dream. The dreams happen, and I've said this before, roughly every one and a half hours after you go through from awake into a very deep sleep state and then back up again. And then instead of coming back into waking up, you go into what's called Rapid Eye Movement Sleep, R-E-M, where if you sneak up on somebody who is in this state and you look at their eyes, you'll see that underneath their closed eyelids, their eyes are going left, right, left, right, like they're watching an invisible tennis match on the inside of their eyelids. This happens Uh. for about 10 minutes or so, and then you go down for another one and a half hours, come back up again, and then you have a longer dream, and so it goes and goes on during the night. Now, we don't really know the purpose of dreams. Certainly, um, sex is not an abnormal behaviour and some people think that too much is not enough. And so if you get a chance to have a wet dream and a sexual orgasm when you're asleep, you're not hurting or harming anybody, you might have to wash your sheets, but on the other hand, you're, you're feeling better. So... But why we actually dream, what we do do, the dreams we don't know, there's a whole bunch of theories. One is that it's to help us get rid of memories we don't want. And if you've got a bunch of friends with whom you can be honest and you talk about things and you might say, oh, do you remember when we did this yesterday? And and you really don't have any memory of it. And instead of just sort of going along, you say, no, I have no memory. And everybody will say, but I remember it. And you have just experienced something where your brain... Has got rid of a memory and it's gone, but it only comes out if you've got friends that you can be honest with and not feel embarrassed about saying things like that. So one thing is to process your memories. Another one is to help you deal with life as it is right now and in the future, so you can think about things for the future. Another aspect, a separate thing of dreams, is that they're about telling stories. And we humans, we just tell stories like crazy. You go watch streaming TV or streaming internet or anything else; they're all stories. You meet people, you tell stories. So dreams are thought to be a way of telling stories that leave, and this is a really stretching it out there theory, that by telling stories all the time, you stop your brain from becoming specialised. Now, this is kind of weird, but I kind of like it. So you can walk down the street and be holding your hand with your little nephew or niece and you're walking them home and you're bouncing a ball and you're thinking about what sort of ice cream to buy them and you're doing all these things at the same time. So, and then the wet dreams thing, too hard. Uh, I think we need a dream scientist, a real one, not a dream interpreter. That's not a very good answer, is it? (laughs) Oh,
0: look, no, it's not too bad. I was just wondering, inquiring, because more or less the other night I was just wondering, because I woke up and uh, pulled my wizard sleeve back and I had this... Oh,
1: I reckon we might just dip out of that. Okay. Let's try and, and keep onwards. it a little above board, 0439757555. And, Isaac, we have you on the line for something a little bit different to the last caller. What's your question for Dr. Carl Isaac?
3: G'day, doctors. How's it going? G'day, Welcome, good. Isaac. Welcome. Well, I have a question. Um, Dr. Carl said it, it, it about uh, doo-doo, about
4: uh, stool human feces. Yep. And um, why is it sometimes... When you go to Pong Fun out, it's spicy, but you haven't had spicy food for a while. What's okay, the Okay, tell
2: me about this. If you have spicy food, you feel it in your yeah. tongue, you know, when you're eating it, but do, are you one of those people who also feels it again at the other end, the so-called ring of fire? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Okay, right. So, right, and then sometimes you're saying you do not have spicy food, but you still have – is it the full-on version or just a sort of a slightly ramped-down version?
4: Oh, sometimes a bit of both. It could go either way.
2: Okay. In my case, I don't have it, but uh, other people in my family do have it. So the reason it, your cells respond is that they have receptors. So we've got to dive into receptor concepts. So the reason that any drug or substance works on your cells is the old lock and Key n- metaphor, which they teach you in Pharmacology 101. And so... Aspirin or paracetamol is the key. And if on the cells in your body where you're feeling the pain, there is a corresponding lock, you know, a receptor, if the chemical goes exactly into the receptor, then it will relieve the pain or make the pain worse or whatever. That's the basic concept of pharmacology, well, one, one of them. In yeah. the case of feeling spices, the uh, chemical involved is called capsaicin, C-A-P-S-A-I-C-I-N, and the receptors on your tongue are called T-R-V-P-1. The V stands for vanilloid, I don't know why. And it turns out that these receptors, firstly, will fire off when the chemical capsaicin appears in your mouth, but also will fire off when you have hotness on your tongue, like a hot drink. Yeah. So that's why you sort of think, oh, it's hot. Now... Different people in our family it varies have different numbers of these receptors around the anus. So in, in my in one person in our family has a lot. I've got hardly any, so I don't get the ring of fire. So it seems to me that you've got a lot, and there's another chemical in your diet. It's not hotness, it's not capsaicin, but there's something else that will accidentally fire off this receptor, thus making you think that you're having the ring of fire. Oh wow! So uh, but, I've got I've got a bit of tongue in my bum. Will we'll help me on this one here. What do we do now? I'm not sure if uh, that's no, no, exactly
1: no. what he was saying, but thanks no, so no, no. much. Thanks for rescue Let's jump to the next question. Oh, yeah, we have you. Dr. Jesse on the line. What's your question for Dr. Carl?
2: Dr. Jesse, welcome.
3: Uh, how you going, doctors? Um, I've got a question about. I had um, hay fever very bad a few weeks ago, so I was using decongestant nasal spray to. Um, clear me out and I've been using it for about three weeks straight and um, it's it's causing other issues in my sinuses. Now I've stopped and I've got congestion worse than ever. ever. I think it's called rebound congestion Mm -hmm. and um, I'm I'm wondering how long that's going to last for or what can I do to soothe
2: that? Okay, a bit of a background. In your nose you've got blood vessels and they can either swell or they can contract. Okay, that's the first bit of background. Secondly, these blood vessels are not an inanimate pipe made of plastic. They're a bunch of cells that have formed themselves flat, rolled themselves into a tube and on the inside goes blood or anything else. Secondly, wrapped around the bit that holds the blood in are muscle fibres. And so they can relax. contract or relax, letting more or less blood go through. So when you take a decongestant, uh, such as oxymetazoline or adrenaline, you activate the muscles and it just shrinks down. Now, here's the basic thing. If you, you should not use a nasal decongestant, de- decongestant spray for more than three days, You said three weeks. Mate, that's naughty. Um, You should have been advised better by your pharmacist or doctor, but you take them for only three days and then you stop. Okay, why do you get this so-called rebound congestion? If you go to the so-called wellness homepages, they'll have all sorts of explanations which sound wonderfully clear and then they'll offer to sell you something and it's a con. If you go to the medical sites, they'll say, quite honestly, we do not know. We don't fully understand why you get this rebound congestion, but we know that it's real, and three days is the maximum. So at this stage, if you were heading into your fourth or fifth day, it's time to go back to your GP and work out a different plan. So how long it will last for, I don't know, but three weeks is way too long to be using it, and you might not have been properly advised. is is that kind of helping a bit there dr jesse
3: yeah it's helping a bit i'm just hoping to be able to get some sleep at night with a completely blocked nose so i was i was hoping if there's something else i could use rather than the oxymetazoline that would
1: what are um, some other options dr carl for people who are looking for that longer term relief do you know much about that
2: unfortunately in the short term uh, it's going to be breathe through your mouth and have a really dry mouth and woke wake up during the night and have to keep on drinking water Talk with your GP, but three weeks is way too long for a nasal decongestion. Three days is it. Okay, Sorry, Jesse. Yeah,
3: Thank that you so, out much. Hard, I think. Thanks. Okay, Thanks so much. Thanks so much for that, mate. Dr.
1: Jesse. Appreciate your question. Sarah on the line. Dr. Sarah, what's your question for Dr. Carl?
0: Good morning, doctors. I was just wondering when you're driving in a car at, say, 100 kilometres an hour and there's a fly buzzing around, how come? it's not going 100 kilometres an hour or when it's in flight not getting smashed against the, the back windscreen.
2: Ah, this is called relativity and people have been thinking about this for a long time. Even before Einstein, Galileo thought about it and the magic words are inertial frame of reference. And the best example is you getting onto an aeroplane or a train and you're sitting in a seat and you are at rest relative to the ground. The airplane's not moving relative to the ground and you are not moving relative to the ground. Then the aeroplane or train starts to accelerate and you get pushed back right. in the seat. And so that's your force acting on you and you are with the train or the plane and you are gradually accelerating with it to the same speed that it is doing and eventually you end up at either 300 kilometres an hour in Europe on a train or 20 in Australia going flat out because our system sucks or in an aeroplane 900 kilometres an hour. Now, you are travelling at 900 kilometres per hour relative to the ground. But relative to the plane, you're travelling at the same speed. There's no difference in the speed between you and the plane or, in your case, between the average speed of the fly in your car and you and the body of the car. Relative to the road, your fly is doing 100 kilometres an hour but is protected by wind blockers, the metal and the glass. Now, if you were to get the fly and hold in your hand gently and then put it outside the window, then open your hand, vimbo, it would be exposed to the wind, which is going past at 100 kilometres an hour. So think about you on an aeroplane. You go into the aisle. You're doing 100 kilometres an hour, 900 kilometres an hour. Just, just jump. And when you jump in the air, you're no longer physically connected to the plane. You're in the air. Do you suddenly find yourself hurtling down the aisle of the aeroplane to end up at the back of the aeroplane on the inside in a thin, chunky, red layer of salsa? No. You just land wherever you took off from because you've been through that acceleration and you are now in the inertial frame of reference of the aeroplane. It's a complicated way to think about it, but on the other hand, it can take you further in your understanding of relative movements. Sorry. Thank
1: goodness. No, that makes sense. Thank Thank you, Sarah, for your question. appreciate it. Next up, we have Dr. Kane. Dr. Kane, what's your question for Dr. Carl?
2: Dr. Kane, welcome.
1: Seems like he might not be there. We've got Ari on the line. Ari, what's your question for Dr. Carl?
0: My question for Dr. Carl is if I have a hole straight from one end of the earth to the other, east to west, south to north, and I jumped in that hole, Would I go all the way through to the other side of the Earth or would I stop in the middle because of gravity pushing me?
2: Um, You would go all the way through to the other side and in the middle you would reach the same speed as the International Space Station. So let's just sort of make it easy. So we'll pretend that you're running from the North Pole to the South Pole straight along the spin axis of the Earth because that way you don't have to worry about the fact that the Earth is spinning. And also, you've got some sort of material that will withstand the temperature at the centre of the Earth, which is hotter than the surface of the sun, 5,000 degrees C. And also, it's a vacuum all the way through. Because if you just had air in there, you've managed to drill a hole all the way through the Earth, and you've got your heat-proof walls. But if you had air, after 90 kilometres the air would turn into a semi-solid liquid and you'd you'd run into it and go mush. So let's pretend it's a vacuum and you're wearing a spacesuit. Now, you you step into the hole and for a brief instant you're just floating there and and then you fall, right? Now, in front of you is all of the Earth and it has mass and it pulls on you and you start accelerating and you go faster and faster and faster. When you get to the centre, you're travelling seven kilometres a second, the speed of the International Space Station, And um, you've got half the Earth in front of you, pulling you, but you've also got half the Earth behind you, pulling you. And that'll try to slow you down. So now you're gradually going to slow down until finally, with zero velocity, you end up at the other side of the Earth and then you go backwards and forwards again. It's called simple harmonic motion and the time required is about 42 to 45 minutes. And here's a weird thing. It doesn't matter where you drill the hole from or to, it's always 45 minutes or 42 minutes, depending uh, on the density of the material you're going through. So if you're thinking about, say, Canberra to Sydney or Canberra to London or Canberra to Beijing, if you could drill a hole straight through, it's always 42 or 45 minutes.
0: I'll give him. Wow, that is very interesting.
2: Thanks, Dr Cole. Oh, thank you, Dr Airy. And we've got
1: a question straight off the ranks. We've got Kane. What's your question for Dr. Carl?
4: Yeah, g'day, doctors. G'day. Um, Welcome. Yeah, I'm just ringing about helium-3. Is it, is it real? Is there a lot on the moon? And can it be used as a suitable clean energy source for nuclear reaction?
2: Uh, yes. So we'll talk about atoms. And yep. potentially it could be used, but there's problems. So here we go. Um, the lightest element is hydrogen and in the middle it's got one single proton and orbiting around it is one single electron. And then you move up to helium and that's got two protons and two neutrons in the middle. That's helium four. That's a regular one. But there's also helium three which has got two protons and one neutron, and for various reasons it is thought, it has been claimed to be the new wonder energy source for the future. This is how it works. On Earth, there's not a lot of helium-3. There does seem to be a lot, and I use the word seem, there does seem to be more on the Moon, um, being embedded in the upper layers of the rock by the solar wind over billions of years. This is how we're going to use it for energy. Well, firstly, with regard to energy... In a nuclear reactor, all we've got so far is nuclear fission. And fission is a fancy word meaning you split big atoms to make small atoms and there's energy left over. Use that energy to make heat. The heat turns water into steam. So a nuclear reactor is basically a steam engine. The other sort is a fusion reactor we have never been able to get more energy out than we put in for any extended time. So that's the first thing. And what the proponents of helium-3 are saying, it is a future energy source and unlike most nuclear fusion reactors and reactions, when we do the stuff with helium-3, you don't make everything around it become radioactive. That is the claimed advantage of helium-3 Bearing in mind we've never made a nuclear fusion reactor anyway of any sort, helium-3 or anything else. And then going against the claim that it won't make the outside surrounding material become radioactive, the temperatures needed to get helium-3 fusion are way higher, like we're talking hundreds of millions of degrees, much higher than the normal fusion reactors we're trying to build now unsuccessfully, and that may may create other reactions we don't know yet that would make everything else become radioactive. So it's kind of an extreme hype as to we should go to the moon so that we can get infinite free energy. There's many, many steps before we can even begin to think about getting energy from helium-3 being fed into our electrical grid. Does that kind of help a bit?
4: Yeah, that answers it. I was just wondering whether it was all hyped and, um, yeah, if it was a bit, a bit overboard with how good they were saying it was going to be. But I are saying they've got like 3,000 years of clean energy up there.
2: Thank um you. it's not impossible but we've got clean energy from yes the 17 renewables of which we're using mainly only two which is wind and solar we're not using tidal energy to any significant degree at all okay so at this stage it's a bit of an overhype yeah okay yep yeah, that answers my question thank you
1: my goodness. Thank you. It's so exciting to hear you go through this thought process, Dr. Carl. So lovely to be with you. My name is Tanya Bunter. We've got Dr. Carl here for the Science Hour. If you have some questions for us, 0439 is how you can get in touch. Thank you, Dr. Um, We now want to jump into a question that actually really pricked my ears up just because I know that there's a link between fecal, microbiotic transplants and mental health. I think there's been a bit of research into, I remember seeing maybe an Australian story or or some sort of program on the ABC where a partner was transferring fecal matter into their partner in order to sort of help them get back into a better state of mind using the, the gut. So it's a really interesting connection. Can you tell, jake dr jake our question about this more specifically what is this story with you
4: yeah good day, doctors how are you going
1: yeah good yeah, thanks yeah, jake, welcome. what's your question
4: um so yeah i've been uh sort of on a um, bit of a journey for the past five years uh, just after drinking uh, mislabeled tap on a um, on an army base and yeah just sort of ended up with a couple of nasty parasites, bacteria, all that sort of stuff. And um, yeah, it gave me a bit of uh, some, yeah, chronic gut issues Um, after many years of different, trying to work out what's going on and all that sort of stuff. We, um, I finally got in with the Center for Digestive Diseases um, and working with uh, a great doctor there who's, Sort of the lead doctor in Australia at the moment with fecal matter transplants. Um, so he's pretty much put it down to uh, what they call like a dysbiosis, which is just an imbalance of the the bacteria in your stomach, um, which is affecting as um, as you said, you know, the mental health. Like I never had anxiety before, depression, all these things, and they just sprung up out of nowhere. And I think they're um, they're ever doing all of these tests on people and even like using it to help people with bipolar disorder and, you know, anxiety, depression, all that sort of stuff, but mainly just as a base to cure the C. difficile bacterial infection. Um, So I'm really excited to be a part of the program and hopefully, you know, this does work for me, but I just, um, I find it very interesting and wondering if you've heard anything about the matter.
2: Yes. Um, As always happens with these treatments, uh, they start off not being accepted, then get massively overhyped, and then we end up eventually uh, in a realistic situation. We're currently in the overhyping situation. Um, The first case on record was with a woman uh, who had Clostridium difficile happening overgrowth of the, this nasty bacteria in her gut. So what happened was that she had an injury and so she went to hospital to have it fixed, but then she was in pain, so then they gave her opiates and then this slowed down her gut and then various things happened and then they gave her antibiotics because she got an infection and after a while, she ended up with an overabundant growth of C-difficile, D-I-W-F-I-C-L-E, in her gut and this can be very nasty. In her mm. case, after nine months... She, was, she had lost two-thirds of her body weight. Oh, sorry, one-third of her body weight. She was so weak that she couldn't stand. She was in a wheelchair, and she was kind of heading towards death. Mm. And the thing was, look, we, we know something's gone wrong with the gut, and by the way, in your body, you've got roughly 37 trillion cells that came from you via your parents, and another 40 trillion that invaded you. They're not very big, these cells, so they don't make up half your volume. They're co- they're like a small car in size relative, say, to an Olympic swimming pool. So, yeah. you've got a, a, so you've got a couple of hundred grams in your guts of these bacteria and you need these bacteria. If you did not have these bacteria in your gut, you would be eating twice as much at each meal, you would be two-thirds your body weight, and you'd have a very weak immune system. And so with this woman, they then said, look, we've got nothing else to do. We, we know that the gut bacteria are just all over the place and then they did the first fecal transplant in a human and they, um, and it worked and she, she came good. They got some from her husband because they just sort of took some out of her husband's back end, shoved up her back end and, and it helped recolonize her gut, um, the, the large intestine, and it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it doesn't work. And by the way, it goes back to farmers where you know how cattle will chew grass, they can turn grass into muscle. And the way they do it is they have a bunch of fermentation chambers and every now and then the farmer will see that one of the cattle just isn't growing. 99 are doing well, one is not. And what they'll do is they'll come to another healthy baby cow and then grab some of the stuff out of its mouth when it brings it up, you know, the chewing of the cud, and I will grab mm-hmm. a couple of handfuls of that and then go over to the cow that's not Growing well and shove it in that cow's mouth, and it'll get better. So, with this uh, fecal transplants, um, there's a lot of hype and a lot of overclaims. And I have met various people who have paid lots of money to go through this and have not benefited at all but have lost a lot of money. So, we're going through the overhype stage. If it can work for you, hallelujah! If it works for you, yeah, yeah,
4: okay. I've had C. diff three times. So I've had like what they call like a relapse, I suppose. But um, I think with any treatment as well, like you have to, because it's gut brain, right? So if you you really have to, like with anything, um, commit and believe that it's going to work for you and do the right things and not, you know, eat crap food and all that sort of stuff in order for it to work, I think.
2: Uh, I um, think you said two think, different things there. One is eating good food and having a good diet and doing exercise. And the other one is where they say, commit to us. Keep pouring money yep. from your credit card to us for the next five years. So, no, 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 but you can find
4: your own donors as well. You know what I mean? Like you can provide your own donors through, um, you know, obviously very intense um, like uh, testing and stuff like that. But, right. um, but usually they give you six months worth and then they send you on your way. That's how it works. Um, If it works for
2: you, that's good, but don't expect it to work for everybody. Mm. Thank you so much for
1: that, Jake. We really appreciate your vulnerability on the text line as well and getting us into a whole little section of science that is a little bit different. Um, Dr Carl, Troy from Bendigo on the text line, has a question that says, is any country even close to manipulating the weather on a daily or seasonal
2: basis? No. Uh, we, well, yes, yes. We have manipulated the weather by putting greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and we've warmed up the lower atmosphere by one centigrade degree, which means that the um, air can carry an extra 7% more water vapour maximum, which means the maximum rainfall goes up by double. So in the case of Brisbane this year... He got hit by an atmospheric river. Read the stories I've written about this for the ABC, Dr. Carl. Search ABC, Dr. Carl, atmospheric river. And Brisbane got hit by eight cubic kilometres of water in three days. In the past history of Brisbane, uh, they'd only had four days in 150 years where they had more than 200 mils of rain. That's a huge amount. That's like two fists, one on top of the other, in one day. And with the atmospheric river that hit early March, uh, what we had was three days in a row. 50,000 people evacuated, people dead, very, very messy. So trying to then go to have a storm act on the airfield of your enemy so the aeroplanes can't take off. We can't do that. That has been the goal of the United States Air Force since I think 2020 and a few... They put in a 25-year plan to try and manipulate the weather. They haven't succeeded. Other people are also trying to claim that they can manipulate the weather they can't. Um, If you read stuff online about HAARP causing weather changes, it's all conspiracy theory. So it's like HAARP. The musical instrument, H-A-R-P, with a double A in there. So can we manipulate the weather to give us rain where we want it reliably? No. Can we manipulate the weather to deny access to a certain area to who we perceive as our enemy? No. But have we changed the weather with regard to climate change? Yes.
1: Does that, um, I feel like that does really look into the future of where a lot of discussions are happening at the moment. So thanks, Dr. Carl. And thank you, Troy from Bendigo, for your question. And we've got one final question here. Hello, Dr. Ash, are you there?
2: Dr. Ash, come on down. G'day, Dr. Carl, how are you? PG keen. and your question or comment?
4: Um, so I've got a long standing. so I'm a tradesman in Canberra, and we've got a long standing uh, bout with, with an esky, Mm. Um, So if we were to get beers on a Friday afternoon, do you put water in the ice to make the beer get colder or do you leave it just as ice? This will settle a very long-bouted argument um, Mm. on our side.
2: So on one hand, you've got the esky, which has some degree of insulation due to the material from which it is made. And inside, you've got dry ice at this moment, not dry ice as in carbon dioxide ice, but you've just got water ice which hasn't turned into liquid and it's not providing intimate contact with the cans of beer. It's just sort of spreading the cools via the air and you're thinking if you can have intimate contact via water, that will help remove heat from the beer to cool it down more. Is that your kind of thinking?
4: That's exactly my thinking. I'm on the My thought's always been that add water to it, that's always going to help, but um, I've got a couple of very stubborn tradesmen standing next to me that uh, disagree.
2: Okay, so Um, if you add water to it, you are introducing some warmth into the system and interfering what will be the situation in an hour or two. Short term, you will get more intimate contact of the ice to the water to the beer and greater transmission of heat from the beer can into the water, into the ice, melting it. If you can possibly wait, the thing to do is to let the ice melt and create its own cold water at zero degrees C. So, but I I can see the desire to have the short-term gain of bringing it down. Now, the the other thing you can do, and this is a dangerous thing, is to get the beer can, put it in a sock, put some metho on the sock and then swing it around while lighting it and that will then cause all sorts of other things, (laughs) don't even go down that pathway. So... Short term, I, I think it would increase, but I'm not sure. We have done the experiment on Sleet Geeks with Adam Spencer and Ruben Nieman advising us, and it did turn out that you do not tip out the water, you never get rid of any cools that you've already got. But the adding of the water, I have not done the experiment, so I don't know that. It's just my guess. I'm sorry, Dr. Ash. I don't know. No, no that's
4: okay, Dr. Um, Carl. I, I feel like um, what you're saying is that I'm correct in the short term, so that's great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Whoa. Hopefully that does settle some arguments for you on the worksite, Ash. Thank you so much for your question. And thank you so much, Dr. Carl, for joining us here on Mornings.
2: It's been so nice a lot of fun. You. Look, thank you so much.
1: Thanks for listening. My name is Tanya Bunter. Lucy is going to be back with Dr. Carl on Thursday to answer more of your science questions. This is a podcast that's been produced by Lou Hill. And if you want to find out more, you can head to the Triple J website, the Triple J app to find more episodes of the pod. I'll catch you next time. Get all
0: the latest with the Triple J app. Watch this week's Like A Version. Catch up on all the latest Triple J content and listen back to your favourite shows. Download it now.